questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Now from chapters 2 to 6, it describes how the walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt despite quite vigorous and times violent opposition from the surrounding pagan nations. It also describes a number of social and civil reforms which are enacted within the nation at the time. I'm jumping now here to chapter 8. Uh, from chapters 7 to 12, Nehemiah turns to the spiritual reform of the people, and this is the focus of the remainder of the reading. So from Nehemiah 8 verse 1. All the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Masiah, Kelita, Azariah, Jozebad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send them to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the scribe to give attention to the words of the law. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. 
They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of, their, of, the, law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God. The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand. All these now join their brothers, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us, to take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, new moon festivals and appointed feasts, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the duties of the house of our God. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all our trees and of our new wine and oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. We will not neglect the house of our God. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people. And there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Eliashib, the priest who had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God, he was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and I asked them, why is the house of God neglected? In those days, I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. I rebuked them and I called down curses upon them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Very ably and skillfully reading, not just a long reading, but again with uh, many tricky names. Did a great job of that, thank you. Uh, so let me pray for us before we uh, look further at this passage of Scripture together.
Heavenly Father, um, as we continue to plot the trajectory of your unfolding salvation purposes through the Bible, and as we come to this last uh, point on the historical timeline in the Old Testament, uh, we pray that we would uh, see with clearer vision how it is you and you alone who can fulfill your promises, and that we, uh, as frail, sinful human beings, are entirely reliant on you, the Creator God, to save us from sin and from death and from all the consequences which flow from that. So we pray as we continue on this journey together, uh, encourage our hearts that you are indeed in, in control and are working out your purposes on the canvas of human history, and you will bring them ultimately to fulfillment. Amen. So we're continuing this uh, overview of the Bible, and uh, just a brief recap, we saw that uh, in 587 BC, uh, a final uh, and the greatest catastrophe befell God's people. That, of course, was when uh, the remnants at the time were finally overrun by the Babylonians. Uh, Jerusalem was destroyed, as was the temple, and the people were taken away in bondage to Babylon. Uh, that might well have been the end of God's people, uh, which by this point were just this small rump in the south, the, um, that's the two remaining tribes in the, the kingdom of Judah. However, in 539 BC, events on the international stage took a dramatic and a fortuitous turn. A new empire arose, a new superpower was in the ascendancy. Now we should have a diagram here. Oh, here we have it. So we have three empires, uh, each of which uh, shaped the history of Israel. We've seen, of course, the Assyrians, which was the, that orange uh, section, uh, and that was when the first, the ten tribes were taken away and then intermarried and dispersed and lost their identity. Uh, then the Babylonians overtook the Assyrians, of course, and we can see that with that uh, pink area, and that was when the remaining two tribes were taken from Jerusalem here, uh, over to Babylon. So you can see um, on the left they are taken uh, east to Babylon. But we're now picking up on the history thereafter when with the rise of the Persian Empire, which as you can see was huge uh, as per the purple area. And uh, the Babylonian king, uh, Cyrus, had a policy of allowing the peoples uh, which were formerly exiled by the Babylonians to return to their homelands. And so that is what happens. Uh, he allows the, Babylon, uh, the Jews in Babylon to go back to Jerusalem. Uh, but there is the Susa, the capital city of the Persian Empire, which you can just see to the right of Babylon. And that is where uh, Nehemiah goes with some of the other Jews. So, um, let's pick up on this then. So the, the Jews were allowed to return. Uh, but unlike the original exodus from Egypt, uh, this exodus was more a trickle than a flood. Uh, many Jews have become comfortable in the foreign land, and the prospect of returning to a devastated nation didn't really carry much appeal. So they did go back, but they went back in a trickle. And so we come now to the tail end of the Old Testament historical books. Uh, we're going to look particularly at Nehemiah today, but in this final section is Ezra, uh, Nehemiah, and Esther. And these record what happened after the return from exile. So if we've got um, another diagram here, this shows the, uh, all the books of the Bible, uh, helpfully color-coded according to their genre. So uh, the first two 
uh, levels of the shelf of the Old Testament. At the very top left, we've got the law, the Pentateuch, those first five books. But then we have, which are those um, sort of dark orangey ones on the top right, the history books of the Old Testament. And so chronologically, uh, in terms of the history of the Old Testament, the last three of those are effectively charting the last part of the history of the Old Testament, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Uh, then, of course, we have on the next shelf uh, a different genre, the poetry, uh, and then the final genre in the Old Testament, which is, um, in the yellow, all the prophetic books. Uh, and then, of course, in the New Testament, we have the, uh, the Gospels of Jesus, and then all the letters, uh, and finally, the, the pro- only prophetic book of the New Testament, of course, Revelation. So we are uh, working with Nehemiah up there at the top right, uh, which actually chronologically is charting the last part of the history of the Old Testament. Let me give you a brief um, overview of the book of Ezra before we move on to Nehemiah. Uh, The book of Ezra chronicles the main events surrounding the initial return uh, from Babylon. Uh, The first major group trekked back to Jerusalem in 537 BC. Uh, They were told, rebuilt the altar, and after a 20-year lapse, they finally finished rebuilding the temple. But the temple that they rebuilt was actually uh, a pale imitation of the glory of the temple built by Solomon. And of course, this temple also fell far short of the glorious rebuilt temple envisaged by the prophets. Uh, that was in Ezekiel, we saw in Ezekiel 40 and 40 to 42 and chapters 47. So that was Ezra. It records the initial return of the Jews by courtesy of uh, Cyrus, the Persian king. And next we come to the book of Nehemiah. Uh, the book of Nehemiah opens in 445 BC in Susa, the capital, principal capital of the Persian Empire. Uh, it's now over 90 years since the first exiles returned Uh, from captivity, going from Babylon uh, to Jerusalem. And a successor to King Cyrus is now on the throne, King Artaxerxes in Persia. Uh, Nehemiah is a Jew living in Susa, and he has the privileged, trusted job of being cupbearer to the king. In chapter 1 of Nehemiah, he receives a report about the state of affairs back in his homeland in Jerusalem. And this is what he's told, chapter 1, verse 3. Those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and distress. The walls of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burnt with fire. Uh, Nehemiah is distraught to hear of the state of affairs back in Jerusalem. Uh, He commits himself to earnest prayer, and then, when the time is right, uh, he courageously broaches the issue with the king. He says, I want to go back. I want to rebuild. And amazingly, uh, the king is favorable to his request. Uh, The king grants Nehemiah permission. Uh, He also provides protection for him, uh, provides soldiers to protect him on the journey back, and also provides Nehemiah with resources uh, to rebuild uh, Jerusalem. And so uh, Nehemiah returns and becomes the governor of the Jews back in Jerusalem. Uh, The book of Nehemiah actually shows us that um, he was governor uh, for two periods. He had two terms of office, if you like. Uh, His first administration lasted for 12 years, and that's recorded in the first 12 chapters of Nehemiah. Uh, Then he has to go back for a brief while to Susa, 
returns and has a second period as governor, which is recorded in chapter 13. So let's think about uh, Nehemiah himself. Uh, we know and we see that Nehemiah is a good guy. Uh, he is a godly, devout Jew. And he has a good heart. Uh, his desire is for God to restore his people, uh, to keep his promises, to restore them to all that he promised. Uh, his prayer in chapter 1 is very revealing. Uh, his prayer reveals that Nehemiah is in no doubt about the source of all their problems, but also he's in no doubt about what's required if things are going to be put right. Look again at chapter 1, verse 7 onwards. He prays this. We have acted very wickedly towards you. He's speaking his prayer to God. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. So you see, rightly, uh, Nehemiah analyzes their situation through the lens of God's covenant with Moses. God had promised that if they obeyed his law, they would be blessed. We saw that in the kids' talk. Uh, conversely, God had also warned that if they disobeyed his law, they would fall under his curse and they would lose everything, as they had. But God had also assured his people that if they returned to him, he would restore them. And so this promise of restoration beyond judgment clearly fills Nehemiah's horizon. Nehemiah is galvanized by God's promise given through the prophets before and during the exile. Uh, we've been looking at those in previous weeks. Those promises of restoration that building trajectory of hope. They painted, of course, a picture of a spectacular future for God's people. Uh, the prophets, uh, before and during the exile, said that God's people would once again live in God's place under God's blessing. Remember, the pro they, they had said that um, God's people's enemies would be no more. Uh, they had promised that they would enjoy a peace and prosperity like that of the Garden of Eden. God's people, they promised, would return and be united under one king from the line of David. The prophets had promised that the temple would be rebuilt and God himself would dwell there and even the nations would stream to it. And God had promised through those prophets that he would deal with sin once and for all by forgiving his people. He would grant them new hearts and he would place his Holy Spirit in them. And consequently, they would sin no more, and they would enjoy God's blessing forever. When Nehemiah first arrives in Jerusalem, it is all too painfully clear that these promises have not yet come to fruition. That God's people are now back in God's place, but it's not the blessed life. There is no prosperity. The city is burnt out, and it's sparsely populated. Uh, the people are in debt, they're famished, they're enslaved, and they're distressed. And not only is there no prosperity, there is no peace. They are surrounded by enemies. 
They are also highly vulnerable with the city walls and the gates destroyed. And finally, there is no king. There is no king in the line of David. Why have God's promises of restoration not yet been fulfilled? And the answer is because the problem of sin remains. Uh, Nehemiah knows that sin is the great barrier that stands between them and God's promises of restoration and blessing. And hence Nehemiah has a heart not just to rebuild the city, but also to reform the people. So, uh, what did Nehemiah accomplish? Well, uh, Nehemiah certainly undertook some ambitious projects during his first term of office. Uh, He is best known for rebuilding the city walls in the face of considerable opposition. Uh, We skipped over those chapters, but they take up a a significant section of that first half of the book. Uh, But that's not all. Uh, Nehemiah also succeeded in challenging uh, oppressive practices of usury within the Israelite community. But Nehemiah's most significant policy by far was that which sought to promote the spiritual reform of the people. Nehemiah realized that if God's promises were ever to be fulfilled, the people's sin would have to be addressed. And of course, the first step in returning to the Lord is to return to his word. And this was Nehemiah's starting point. Uh, By this time, there was widespread ignorance of God's law within the people of Judah. And so Ezra, the scribe, is instructed to blow the dust off the covenant documents and to read them to God's people. Chapter 8, verse 1. All the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the scribe, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. And not only is the book of the law read to the people, but it's also explained. They get, if you like, the application of the law. This is what it looks like if you're to live it out. At chapter 8, verse 7. Uh, the Levites instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. And sure enough, God's law does its work. As the law is read, the holiness of God comes into ever clearer relief. And the unholiness of the people becomes ever more apparent. And with understanding comes deep conviction of sin and sorrow. Chapter 8, verse 9. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, And that Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words 
of the law. The law brought deep conviction of sin and an appropriate godly sorrow. But it didn't stop there. The people are moved from a conviction of sin to heartfelt repentance. Uh, They own their sin. The guilt in their hearts drives them to confess their sin. They humbly pray, confessing their sin to God. Chapter 9, verse 1. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the, of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God. Uh, their confession is heartfelt. Their confession is thorough. They don't just confess their own sin, but also the sin of their fathers. Uh, they rehearse their history. But not only do they seek forgiveness for the past, but they pledge to change the future. You see, their confession is accompanied by repentance. They vow that hereafter they will seek to follow God's law with all their hearts. Chapter 10, verse 28. Uh, The rest of the people, uh, verse 29, now join their brothers, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. And what's more, this repentance isn't just a general wishy-washy Commitment to try harder. They are specific. They outline what true repentance looks like on the ground. Uh, Firstly, they vow to separate themselves from God's enemies. Chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God. Verse 3, when the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who are of foreign descent. Uh, Secondly, they promise to not marry pagan people. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 30. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the people around us or to take their daughters for our sons. And it doesn't stop there. Thirdly, they vow to honor the Sabbath. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 31. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year we will all forego working the land and will cancel all debts. And it doesn't stop there. Because fourthly, they commit to not neglect the house of God and the priesthood. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 32. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, new moon festivals and appointed feasts, for the holy offerings, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the duties of the house of our God. Also chapter 10 verse 37. Uh, We will bring a tithe, that means a tenth, of our crops to the Levites 
for it is the Levites who collects the tithes in all the towns where we work. And then finally, in chapter 10, verse 39, they say this, we will not neglect the house of our God. Well, what a turnaround. It seems like we've got ourselves a mini revival here. It's a promising turn of events. Uh, maybe now at last they will be able to obey and in so doing to bask in the blessings of the covenants through Moses. But Nehemiah has to return to Susa. Uh, we see this in chapter 13, verse 6. In the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had to return to the king. Sometimes later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. And so the second period of his governorship commences. And when he does return to Judah sometimes later, all is not well. Sadly, whilst the cat was away, the mice did play. And despite the best of intentions, the people reverted to their prior sinful ways. Uh, the people had vowed to separate themselves from God's enemies. And yet this Ammonite, Tobiah, is not only allowed to stay, but is even given a room in the temple. Chapter 13, verse 7. Uh, Nehemiah says this, Here I learned about the evil thing Elishib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Uh, secondly, the people had vowed not to neglect the house of the Lord, yet neglect it they did. Chapter 13, verse 10. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? The people had vowed to honour the Sabbath, and yet desecrate it they did. Chapter 13, verse 15. In those days, I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Fourthly, the people had vowed not to intermarry with pagan people. And yet they chose not to resist the lure of foreign women. Chapter 13, verse 23. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashod, Ammon, and Moab. And so, the Old Testament history concludes. It closes on that bleak note. God's people are back in the land. However, the prospect of God's blessings being realized seem as distant as ever. The vice-like grip of sin on the human heart seems unbreakable. Who can rescue humanity from this body of death? So 
so long as sin reigns, the covenant through Moses brings condemnation and curse, not blessing. And when you think about it, the returned exiles had more incentive than most people to obey. They had seen the awful consequences of sin in the exile. They knew that the path to God's blessing was by obedience. They even took vows to repent and reform. And yet there are vows that they cannot keep. They are incapable of living out the obedience required for blessing. Instead, by nature, they are wayward sheep and they deservedly fall under God's curse. So God's promises made to Abraham, uh, to Moses and to David are never actually fulfilled at any time in the Old Testament. Uh, They certainly weren't fulfilled uh, before the exile, even at the zenith of Israel's prosperity and power under David and Solomon. But they certainly aren't fulfilled after the exile either. Uh, Despite Nehemiah's considerable achievements, the people fail and God's promises aren't fulfilled. Although the people have returned from exile, it is clearly not the glorious return and rescue envisaged by the prophets. If the situation is to be changed, it will have to be a work of God. It is God who will have to take the initiative. The covenant of the law through Moses only brings condemnation. Sinful people fallen will always fall short of the law's requirements. And that's why God's promises in Ezekiel of a new covenant is humanity's only hope. But when will this new covenant be inaugurated? When will the promised king in the line of David come? And so as the curtains are drawn on Old Testament history, successive generations wait for God to act. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are indeed left in the air at the end of the, this Old Testament historical timeline. We're left in suspense. You have made great promises, and yet it ends on a bleak note. It points us forward to the fulfillment of these promises, which surely come in your time. So we know, of course, they are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, therefore, that we would not rush too quickly to seeing the fulfillment, but would feel the weight of our hopelessness when we seek to live by your law in our own strength. We cannot do it. As a race and as individuals, we are helplessly enslaved to sin and to death. And we desperately need your initiative and your breaking into our lives. As we see that darkness and that hopelessness, may we all the more therefore appreciate what you've done for us in taking the initiative in sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.